Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's reading from Jonah 1 through 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, for those who've been around church for a while, or for even for folks outside of uh, church, you are likely to have heard of the story of Jonah. And when you think of the story of Jonah, usually you think of what thing? Jonah and the whale. It is such a part of our culture uh, that that is what people think of. This is what jo- the story of Jonah really is about. I mean, you could think that there might even, that even seems like the name of a band, Jonah and the whale, Right? So I just Googled it, and sure enough, here we go. Jonah and the Whales. Would you like to hear some of the music that they play? No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm going to be honest about that. What we've done with the story of Jonah is what, we don't, what we've done with a lot of different parts of the Bible, especially uh, when we think about kids' messages. We take like the most visual uh, illustrative moment of that story. We make that the story, and then we create a moral platitude around that picture. 
usually about being just a kind person. And what we find in the story of Jonah is if that is what we think of when we think about this story, this book, we have missed what God has to say to us through the story of Jonah. Uh, the story is about so much more than a whale. And actually, in all the 48 verses that make up the four chapters of Jonah, a whale is only mentioned twice. In two different verses is it's mentioned. It's, if we make Jonah about the story of Jonah and the whale, it's like we make the godfather about Don Corleone and his cat or, you know, uh, Forrest Gump and his chocolates. That's not the point of the story. The story is so much greater. So we're going to spend four weeks on the four chapters of the story of Jonah as we see how faithfully how we see this complex and beautiful story, what it has to say to us today. Um, but for us to know this, we need to know the context. To get the most out of our Scripture, we need to know the context of where the Scripture is coming from. And without context, it's like if you were to drop 95% of us into like watching a daytime soap opera, we would be so confused. And for the other 5%, please don't raise your hand. Uh, we wouldn't know like who's related to who, who used to be married, who just, who just woke up from a coma. Like we wouldn't know like what the story is about. Same thing with us as we just drop into Scripture. Oftentimes we aren't, uh, we aren't able to see the richness of what Scripture is. So if you allow me, I'm going to geek out on the Bible for a little bit. Um, so written in 780 BC, the, the book of Jonah is a part of a collection of, of ancient writings called the Minor Prophets. And they're minor not because they aren't imp important, but they're minor just because they're shorter than the other uh, prophetic writings in our Scripture. So the Minor Prophets are 12 short writings whereby God makes a declaration to God's people through a particular person a prophet. And so the book of Jonah actually starts out like most of the, the, the prophetic writings start uh, like this. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And if you were to read this for the first time, you would see, okay, this is just like any other prophetic writing. It's like all the other minor prophets. But then, a typical, uh, all the other prophets, they would go straight into prose or poetry where they speak on behalf of God to God's people. It goes like, this is what the Lord has said, and then they would tell uh, the, God, the people of God certain things that they've done or certain things that they need to do, the sin in their life or the things that, that God is celebrating. But that's not what Jonah does. Jonah is, is something completely unique, something completely particular. Now, uh, there are two different ways to understand the book of Jonah. What we find is instead of uh, going straight into Jonah speaking on behalf of God, God begins to tell a story through Jonah's life, making a declaration through Jonah's life to God's people, almost like a wake-up call through what happens in Jonah's life. And there's two different ways that um, Orthodox uh, Christians understand, and even Orthodox Jews understand uh, the story of Jonah. And the two different uh, ways that people understand it is this is a story of step-by-step -step history telling, that this happened to Jonah and then this happened to Jonah, just like it's written. And the other understanding, which is also part of Orthodox uh, belief in theology, is that uh, this story is historical. It's actually what happened through a man named Jonah. This actually, all these things happened. But instead of a step-by-step -step retelling, it is historical satire. 
So uh, imagine, just think, Saturday Night Live is satire. So satire takes actual people and actual events and then blows them out of proportion to make commentary, not on only for those individuals, but for us as a culture. That, that, that for me is what seems to be happening in the book of Jonah. But we know Jonah was a historical person, and the writer seems to be taking Jonah's actual real experience that, that he had with God and with Nineveh uh, to speak to Israel. This is God's perfect whole word for you and I today. But when we look at this, if you look at it through the lens of satire, it actually makes, uh, it doesn't diminish God's word, it actually opens it up in a beautiful way. So, for instance, we can see how this book is uh, satirical prophecy by this. So the Hebrew word big or large is used 15 times, 15 times in this short book, in these 48 verses. It's like the, the writer of Jonah is trying to blow things up big. So there was a big, big boat. It was a huge storm. The fish was huge. The city of Nineveh was so big, it took Jonah three, different, three days to walk all the way through it. Now, if you were to know ancient times, you know there's no city that large back then. But what the writer is doing is the writer is almost making all these things caricatures so that we can almost, so it can do what satires do. It, it all of a sudden seems distant from us, different from us, so that it doesn't feel like it could incriminate us. But in the end, we see not only Jonah's folly, but our folly as well. In that we watch this story unfold, and as we're watching it, we don't understand what Jonah's doing. And in the end, what we'll find is that this story becomes a mirror for you and I, for us to see ourselves, for us to see our culture and go, oh, I'm just like that. I have so much to learn from this, prof- this prophet, this story that God is telling through his life. Oh, we as a people, we need to learn through this. And so this prophetic writing be- begins like all the other prophecy books in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, right off the bat, if you were a Hebrew, you, things would be going off in your mind. The, the, the name Jonah literally means dove which is in the Bible, the dove is like the figure of a messenger of peace. So think uh, Noah, and he sends out to see if the, 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 the land was dry. He sends out a dove and comes back. Is this messenger of peace, or even Jesus' baptism, this dove descends from, uh, from the heavens, this messenger of peace. So Jonah, this dove, this messenger of hope, this messenger of peace, he is also the son of Amittai, which means faithfulness. So right off the bat, we're introduced to a man who is called the, the son of faithfulness, the messenger of peace. And what you'll find in the rest of the story is he is the exact opposite, complete opposite, almost in a humorous way, the complete opposite. That is satire, my friends. So God words, God's word comes to Jonah and says in verse 2, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. The city of Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Israelites hated them. Hated them. Just 50 years before uh, the king of Nineveh actually laid siege to Jerusalem, Ninevites were known to be ruthless, to be violent, to be thoroughly evil. It's been documented that uh, 
that when they would go and attack their enemy, if they would win, they would take their leaders and skin them alive in front of their own people, and then after that, carry those people off to captivity. So when Jonah hears, hey, I have a message I want you to give Nineveh. I want you to go preach against it. This is what Jonah does in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship and bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah immediately out of the word of the Lord comes to this messenger of peace, this son of faithfulness, and he goes, see ya, I'm gone. And so Jonah is running from God. And as a reader, we should be provoked with a question, which is, why is Jonah running? Why isn't he being the son of faithfulness? How come, how come he doesn't want to give this message to Nineveh? Wouldn't a prophet who despised a country and a people group love to preach against them? To let them know that God has taken notice of their wickedness? But Jonah flees. He goes, Oh, so far away. He goes to Tarshish, which actually was, if you were to see a map of Nineveh and Tarshish, it's the opposite direction and is the furthest that he could go. Now, why is Jonah running? Is it because that Tarshish is better to visit that time of year? The leaves are starting to turn in Tarshish. Yeah, it's funny. (laughs) Is Jonah afraid for his life if he's going to visit and preach against this violent people? Maybe he's frightened to be dropped down there and maybe something could happen to him? If you read this story, what the answer that we, are, we found, especially in chapter 4, is that Jonah is afraid of something altogether different. What if? What if the people of Nineveh actually repent? What if God is actually sharing this message so that hopefully God can forgive them? No. Uh-uh. God, you're not going to use me for that purpose. God, you're our God. You're Israel's God. You're not their God. You should be familiar with who they are. So I would rather for them to have their wickedness continue to go to you before I go and preach against them. And at that idea, Jonah runs. And he runs far, as far as he can. In verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The actual Hebrew for this is the ship thought about, considered breaking up. It's like this this prophetic, right? This this ship is now animated. It's a living thing. And so the ship was thinking about breaking. It was threatening to break up. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid, and they cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. These sailors were desperate. For the experienced sailor to be afraid, this means that this must have been a big deal. They're willing to try anything. They're so desperate, they're throwing the, very, uh, the, the cargo over. The very way that they're going to pay for their trip is going overboard. And they're praying to their gods. The, their understanding is that there's... There's a bunch of different gods. They're trying to figure out which of their gods that they upset, which of the gods that they anger. And so they're like, hey, Fred, how's, why don't you pray to your god? Okay, that didn't work. All right, Tim, why about you? You know, so they're just taking turns. Anyone, can anyone help us here? And meanwhile, Jonah was asleep. Verse 6, the captain went to, uh, went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your god. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. And it's, 
you know what Jonah does? Nothing. He just like, rolls over and goes back to sleep. In verse 7, the, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lost to find out who is responsible for this calamity. It was like the casting lost is this ancient way of trying to discern what's happened, God's will, that type of thing. So they cast lots, and they, the lot fell on Jonah. All signs are pointing to Jonah that he is not only knows what's going on, but he's responsible. And so in verse 8, they ask him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Like, that's like the dinner party question. What, what do you do for a job? Uh, where do you come from? What is your country? For what people are you? Like, why? Why, Jonah, is this happening? And then Jonah breaks the silence in verse 9. He said, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then this reluctant prophet declares that his God is actually the God, the God of all that you see, of the heavens, the sea, the land. In verse 10, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm, the sea calm down for us? And notice what Jonah does not say. He does not say, what we should do is, I, I need to pray. I need to repent from running from God. Or he didn't say, hey, let's just, all we need to do, honestly, is probably turn this boat around. We have to go to Nineveh. Instead, what Jonah says is this, pick me up and throw me into the sea. <laughs> Am I the only one thinking that's funny? And it'll become calm. I mean, Jonah would rather die than to go to Nineveh. He would rather make these sailors like kill someone rather than to go to Nineveh. All to obey God's calling on him. Jonah, this prophet, is the worst prophet ever. He's like the perfect example of a bitter and stubborn person. A symbol of dove, son of all faithfulness. Not wanting to kill this man of God in verse 13. Instead, the sailors did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew wilder than before. But after a while, it seems like there's no other way, and so they have the first prayer of the book. The first prayer of this book of Jonah comes from these pagan sailors, the first words to God, not the prophet. In verse 14, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you've pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And with tossing Jonah into the water, there all of a sudden was peace. And I like to envision Jonah sinking to the bottom of the ocean with his arms crossed, just shaking his head no. Still too bitter, still too sub stubborn. But up above, a worship service breaks out on that boat. Verse 16, At this all the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. With great irony, this is what's happening. God is still using Jonah's life in the midst of his rebellion. God is still using Jonah to display who God is, even though Jonah is running from it. To make, he doesn't want to make God's name great with all the people of the world, but God is still having his way in and through Jonah's life. 
These men are experiencing the power and the mighty hand of God. And they're now worshiping to him. They're turning to him. They're making vows to him in spite of what Jonah is trying to do. In verse 16, this is something that's small, but I think it's really beautiful and important. In verse 16, these sailors went from talking about the gods, this generic term of speaking of gods, to all of a sudden they're talking about Yahweh, this covenantal relational God. They went from talking about the gods to our God, to my God. You are not only the God of the heavens and the lands and the seas, but you are my God my Lord, and the Lord of this world. This is, the, this is the humor of this story, is all of the roles are being flipped upside down. The sailors are the ones who are seeking, humbled, and fearful of God. And Jonah is the stubborn, self-centered, rejecting individual. Who's re- he's rejecting God's call. He is supposed to be the messenger of hope, but he is not living into it. He's supposed to be the son of faithfulness, but he's being so faithless in this. And the satire of this story is that Jonah, he's seeking to derail God's plan. He's trying as best as he can to derail God's plan. But what we're finding here, what we're finding here is that our rebellion, our rejection of God does not ruin God's desires. The Lord will have his way. And in Jonah's life, it might include more scars, might involve more storms, it might involve this gigantic fish, and it might draw more people in, but God will not be thwarted. And don't be surprised if God redeems even your running. Jonah was running from the possibility of having outsiders turn to God, and even in the running, God is still using Jonah through his life to be a declaration that God is the God of the whole world. But it didn't have to be this way. And that for me is like the warning that we find in this first chapter of Jonah. So far, Jonah is displaying a story of disobedience, a story of stubbornness. Jonah hears from God and immediately runs in the opposite direction. And it is so easy for us as we are reading this story to see Jonah's disobedience and wonder why in the world would he do that? Because God like literally spoke to him. Go and preach to Nineveh. And then he hightails it. But for our life, it seems like our disobedience is so much more cloaked. It's so much more nuanced. We don't think it's that simple for us. You know, because like God doesn't speak to me that way. You know, it's hard for me to know what to do. I don't have God like verbally speaking to me. And so in so many ways, we can just be dismissive of the idea of obeying God, of obeying God's call in our life. I'm thinking about uh, disobedience and obedience a lot lately, in part because I'm in, I'm in day uh, three of a four-day girls' trip that Jen is on right now. And uh, I have three young people at home who are teaching me many lessons of obedience and disobedience. Uh, <laughs> our son, Jack, he's uh, three. Um, he runs all day long. And the funny thing about when he runs, his neck goes limp and he just, he like just runs all day. And it's just like this, this bobblehead. He's just all day long running. He, he is so fast. But when I mention, hey, uh, it's time for us to take a nap. I mean, he is the slowest person in the world. It's like watching dial-up, you know, modems trying to download a video. You're just like, you've got to be kidding me. 
Our oldest daughter, Dylan, she's seven. She's like comes across as really obedient, but she's just sneaky. She just knows better. Hey, Dylan, it's time to go upstairs. Oh, I forgot. To, I was supposed, you're, supposed to get, you're supposed to give me a, a snack earlier. You've been sitting on that for an hour, waiting to use that as ammo. I know you have. Or when I tuck her in, she just like comes up with the most spiritual question. Dad, how does God hear all this pray? No, God's asleep. You go to sleep. And then Allie, she's just straight up disobedient. I ask her to do something, she's like, put it in the suggestion, in the suggestion box, old man. I, no. Like he, yeah, these kids are just teaching me. And so like, it's so infuriating because we literally are the two people who are keeping them alive. We're keeping them alive. It's like, what else do we have to do to build trust that you'll actually like just obey when we ask you to do the most simple, <laughs> simple common thing? Like it's often in my disappointment and in my annoyance when it takes my son five minutes to army crawl to go wash his hands. <laughs> uh, and as I'm seeing him doing this, I just think to myself, I wonder how often this is God's view of my life in so many ways, that God gives me this loving instruction, hey, Mark, it's, it's time to leave that behind. It's, it's time to let that go. And, uh, okay. Or I come up with an excuse when, the, when just out of a loving parent that God is saying, hey, it's time to step out with more courage. It's time to care about the more important things. It's time to put that down. I look for the escape path to go the opposite direction. I remember the things I'd rather do. I try to nuance it with spiritual things. Well, is that really God, how God speaks to me? And eventually I find a way just to simply not obey. And I know it's... It's not that I don't trust God, but I just don't trust God, (laughs) you know, with like what I think is important in life, what I want to do with my life. Uh, Jonah had different ideas of what God should do. Jonah had different ideas of what God should do to Nineveh, and he just didn't trust him. He just didn't simply trust that what God deemed to be good was good. And so Jonah was so annoyed by God that he ran. And I know I run, and I know that you run too. We run in more subtle ways. We don't go to Tarshish, but we definitely avoid things. We run to busyness. We run to substances. We run uh, to entertainment. In doing so, we just kind of numb out this calling on our life. As I heard Tim Mackey, he's a he created this incredible website I would really commend to you called The Bible Project. It's a, one of the best resources I know out there about understanding the Bible. And what he said about the story of Jonah is Jonah think is, thinks that he's running for his life. He's running towards what he thought was good. And in reality, he's not running for his life. He's running from his life. Like going to preach to Nineveh is not what, God, what, not what Jonah wanted his life to be about. And so Jonah ran He ran from his version of what should happen, how things should go. But he doesn't realize he's actually running from his life. He's running from the opportunity to partner with God to speak God's word. He's running from the opportunity to partner with God to see people transformed, to watch God do an incredible thing. He's running from the opportunity to live out his own namesake, to be a son of faithfulness, to bring about peace. And maybe we are running too. Maybe we're not running to a a distant land, but we're running from a call in our own life. Maybe we're running from trusting God with what we think our life should be about. 
Maybe we're running from a change, something we really don't want to change in our life, and we're just white-knuckled with it, and yet we say we trust God, yet we're not able to let it go. I think in part what it means to follow Jesus in our day and age is to have a, a growing sense of awareness of where we simply need to stop running. And in this posture of trust, to, to courageously just turn to Jesus, or maybe in a less attractive term, where we need to obey. When was the last time, I've been provoked with this question in my own life, and I just want to pose it to you. When was the last time you did something contrary to your desires, your appetites, or your plans of your life simply because you felt led by Jesus? Led by Jesus either through God's word, through the counsel of a, of a spiritual companion, a friend, or through just simply the nudging of God's spirit that you said, you know what, the thing I wanted to do, I'm not going to do anymore. I'm going to hold back my appetite. I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. When was the last time we did that? If that's not familiar to us, I, for me, I've wondered if I have fully had a posture of obedience to God. And this is the counterintuitive obedience. It comes down to one thing. It comes down to trust. Obedience to Jesus begins in trusting that what Christ declared as good truly is good. Trust that when we move towards Jesus' callings in our life, we are not running uh, from our life, but we're actually running to it. Jonah thinks that the journey to Nineveh would be too difficult. He thinks Tarshish would be easier, better, more comfortable. And if there's anything we find in this story is that is not going to be the story that God will allow to be written about Jonah's life or Nineveh's life. Jonah doesn't see the storms and the fish ahead of him to get him from the wrong direction to the right. Jonah doesn't see that God is going to build a story of trust you see, Jonah is so much more than a story, and even in this chapter, it's more than a story of disobedience and stubbornness. This is also a story about second chances. And you need to know this. As soon as we know that we're in our lives, we've been like close-handed and disobedient with God, we also need to know in the same hand, on the other hand, we need to know that this story is also a story of second chances. It doesn't matter how long you've been running how hard you've been rowing against the wind, how close-handed you are in your life, or how, willing you're willing, uh, how far you're willing to go, God will always provide a way for you to turn around. Your stubbornness is nothing compared to the stubbornness of God's love. Your stubbornness is nothing compared to the stubbornness of God's call on your life. Notice the last verse in this chapter with Jonah sinking down into the ocean. This is in verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Notice the word provided. <laughs> the Lord provided this fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of this fish three days and three nights. That word provision for me is so powerful in this story. God's provision is to make a way for us to come back to him even in spite of our desire to come back. It's not that Jonah is calling on the name of the Lord. No, that God just provided this opportunity to turn. And though there is always a ship to Tarshish, there will always be a provision by God towards obedience. This is ultimately what we find in Jesus 
we find in Jesus there's a way for us to return to God, to turn to Him again. And even though Jonah is not the son of faithfulness, is not the messenger of peace and hope, Jesus is for you and I, and it provides a way for us to let go of our stubbornness, to lo- let go of our, uh, our, our hard-heartedness, our hard and for us to turn to God again. You see, Jonah's prophecy is telling us this. Do not be fooled. God knows you. God loves you. God wants the best for you. And God will have his way. 